0: One Sunday, when I was about four years old, I sat at the front of the sanctuary during our children's blessing, like I did almost every Sunday. And on this particular Sunday, the pastor asked if any of us kids knew a poem about Jesus that used hand motions. My hand shot up. I knew a poem about Jesus with hand motions. You see, my mom had taught me this poem that she was taught when she was growing up about the Easter story and about three crosses on the hill called Calvary and this garden with a tomb that was empty now because Jesus rose. I will not make you listen to the entire poem, but I did make all of the children in the congregation when I was four years old listen to it. I raised my hand and when the pastor called on me, I said the entire poem, which was pretty long. It went through the entire Easter story. And when I was finished, The pastor nodded very thoughtfully, thanked me for my recitation, and informed me that that was not the poem he was talking about. (laughs) Like you all did, the congregation laughed, and I was pretty embarrassed. However, after after the service that evening, as we were leaving and saying goodbye to the pastor, he stopped my family and very seriously looked at me and said, one day, I will be sitting in one of your congregations. Yeah, it's really sweet. <laughs> my mom first told me that story when I was 14 or 15 years old, and it was my turn to laugh. I was just starting to entertain this feeling of this calling to ministry after I took a biology class in high school and discovered I hated biology and was not going to become the, o- the successful OBGYN I thought I was going to be. However, I was not going to be a pastor. I was thinking something more along the lines of nonprofit work connecting the church and the world in this really like profound social justice way. I had this vision of what a good pastor should be, and I am not it. A pastor would be patient and would always have the right thing to say, would always know what to say. A pastor would be mild-mannered and polite all of the time. A pastor would know the Bible really, really well and would be able to answer every question about it. A pastor should be this representation of the church that I am simply not cut out for. Nope, not me. God should pick someone better, someone with something more profound to say, something, someone with more patience, someone smarter, someone else, anyone else. The people of the first century also had their own expectations of the ways that God should work in their midst and the people that God should use. But before we get into that, we should look at the background that sets the stage for what God's people of the first century expected from the presence of God among them. You see, ancient Israelites were no strangers to occupation and marginalization. Throughout their history, the people of God knew all too well the pain of life under an oppressive, occupying empire. In fact, Psalm 80, the psalm that we read from today, is believed to have possibly been written during the exilic period, which happened between 597 and 538 BCE, where the people of Israel were taken over, the first temple was destroyed, and the Israelites were forced to leave Judah and live under captivity in Babylon. As biblical scholar Lamar Williamson puts it, Psalm 80 is a prayer that belongs to the repertoire of the afflicted people of God on their way through the troubles of history. Fast forward about 400 years, and the Israelites found themselves in a similar situation with a new occupying power. Israel was taken over by the Seleucid Empire, and upon conquering Israel, King Antiochus IV implemented a series of edicts that made the practice of Judaism a capital crime. Jews were no longer allowed to keep the Sabbath, read from the Torah, celebrate their feasts, or offer sacrifices in the temple. They were not even allowed to keep their Jewish names. But this is not where he stopped. You see, Antiochus also attempted to introduce pagan rites in Jerusalem by sacrificing a pig in the temple, desecrating the holiest space in all of Judaism, making it unclean. To boot, Antiochus insisted that people call him Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Under Antiochus' rule, the the Jews were succumbed to the absolute worst of humanity. Those who did not denounce their faith were horribly tortured and killed. Jews watched as their neighbors, friends, family, and even children were slaughtered under an oppressive empire. Things were dark for the people of Israel. It would have been easy to lose hope in God's presence among them. However, this time around, Israel expected the presence of God among them, a Messiah, who would set them free from the bondage of a conquering empire by any force necessary. There was this messianic expectation that this person would be a new David and would reestablish the kingdom of Israel in all of its glory. They wanted a warrior and the redemption of their earthly reign. And walks the Maccabeus family. In 167 BCE, Matthias Maccabeus killed a Jewish man who was sacrificing to Zeus on the temple altar in Jerusalem, sparking a revolt against the Seleucid kingdom. The Jewish man who was sacrificing at the temple did not believe in Zeus, but had made the decision that in order to save his own life, he would compromise his beliefs. And Matthias attacks him, not the Greeks who made him have to make this decision. In the midst of the revolt, Matthias' son Judas proved that he was a powerful and successful leader. Judas Maccabeus won several victories over the Syrian Greek armies, and in 164 BCE, they won. They reoccupy the temple, rebuild the altar, and rededicate the temple in a feast called Hanukkah. This is what Israel expected out of their Messiah. A sword, strength, victories in battle and power. But God's restoration is stronger than our thirst for violence and revenge. The people of God cry out that they want justice, and almost every ounce of humanity in me agrees with them. They saw the absolute worst They saw their family and friends taken from them. They saw evil in its truest sense, and they wanted the people that did that to them to know what they felt. They wanted justice. But God's love, friends, is not just. God's love is righteous. God does not give humanity what it is due. Thankfully, God appears where we least expect it. That brings us back to Psalm 80. This psalm is a community prayer for the restoration of the people of Israel who feel as though God has abandoned them during their oppression. When Israel implores God to give ear and stir up your might, they are petitioning God to hear them and help them because they believe that God is inattentive and absent in their midst. Amid their struggles But what if that was not the case? What if God is showing up in ways that the people could not see because it did not meet their expectations? The people cried out to God to restore them because they believed God was gone from them But what if God was restoring them? Working in ways that they did not see because they were looking in the wrong places overlooking the still small voice of restoration. However, to give them their credit, even in the pits of their immense oppression and in their feelings of abandonment and isolation from God, Israel had the audacity to proclaim that God reigns even though they did not see it. This prayer is an act of faith, and because the people trusted God to transform their circumstances and restore them, This act of faith is also an act of hope, that even though they didn't see it, God would provide. And like those who prayed Psalm 80 long ago, we also must continue to dare to see and expect the reign of God where others see only chaos and expect nothing. God does not abandon us, ever. In the midst of pain, Suffering, loss, and death, God is there, walking beside us, offering the good news of restoration. God is there in the midst of our pain, and God is there in the midst of your pain, your loss, your hurt. It's hard, but we are also given the task of looking for God's voice through it all. But how do we know what voices to listen to? What makes a prophet? That leads us to our passage from Mark 13. In his commentary on Mark, biblical scholar Joel Marcus notes that we first hear language of a false prophet in what is called the Mosaic Warning, which is found in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. And it speaks of a prophet who hopes to gain credence through a sign or wonder. In later Jewish literature, folks connected these false prophets to Moses, naming them as imitators of the true prophet Moses and of his successor, the expected prophet like Moses. Joel Marcus proposed that this mosaic background may be a link with Mark's situation in the Jewish war that happened around 70 CE at the destruction of the second temple since some Jewish revolutionaries viewed their mission as a reprise of Moses' liberation of Israel from Egyptian bondage. Basically, the term false prophet stems from Deuteronomy in connection with those people who tried to be the next Moses, and in Mark's context, the Jewish revolutionaries viewed their mission as a revival of Moses' work to free the people of Israel from captivity. However, the predominant Jewish understanding would have been that these prophets were false because their signs and wonders did not stem from God. The warning we find in Mark 13 against false prophets is deeply rooted in the reality of the first century. Josephus, who was an incredibly influential Jewish historian of the first century, described the false prophets as deceivers and imposters who, under the pretense of divine inspiration, fostered revolutionary changes, and persuaded the multitudes to act like madmen. Josephus describes the miracles of the false prophets as relating to hopes for military victory against the Romans through the direct intervention of God. These false prophets saw their battles, their victory, as God's intervention in their lives. They saw the ways in which they were killing people as God's intervention. That's dangerous. So often, we want God to show up and fit into our earthly understanding of justice, redemption through conquest and power, restoration through violence. But God shows up where we least expect and in ways we do not anticipate. We expect God to help us fight battles that God wants nothing to do with. We impose our earthly understanding of borders and conflict on God with a thirst for violent, but violence, but the God of perfect love is bigger than that. God is bigger than conquest. And I even dare to say that God does not care about our borders, or our kingdoms and empires, our businesses or our profits. God deeply cares about people. God cares about human beings. God's love, mercy, and grace extends to people, not institutions. We can see a false prophet in our midst by the message that they bring. These false prophets do not proclaim the good news that God is among all of us always. They do not place their hope in the God of the universe, but in the sword. It's hard to know what messages are trustworthy. That is why we are encouraged to beware and keep watch. God is at work around us everywhere. The good news is here and present among us, and I believe that with my whole heart. In the midst of pain and hardship, in darkness and despair, God is abundant. There are voices and people that will try to convince us of the depravity of the world of the hopelessness of your situation, of doubt and the goodness that has yet to come, but we have hope. There's no better way to express belief in the reality of God's sovereignty than to address God out of our individual and corporate afflictions, and to continue looking to God as the only source of light and life. When all seems lost and destroyed, we rest assured in our covenant with the God of the universe. We know the prophets in our midst by the relentless hope that they employ. The world is a dark place. You just have to turn on the news to see that. There is pain and suffering everywhere. But we are set apart, not because anything we have done or will do, but because we have hope. And not just some cheap hope that everything will be butterflies and rainbows, because we know it won't be. No, we have hope with teeth, hope that is hard won, hope that has been in total darkness and looks into that total darkness and is not overcome by it. Hope that stares death in the face and promises promises life. Our expectations of the ways that God shows up in our lives are not always where God truly is. I had and continue to have expectations of who God should call to ministry instead of me. And yet, I continue to feel God's persistent call on my life, even when I don't want to. God shows up for us and works for us and in us, not because we are the right messengers, but because God's love is perfect, providing a relentless hope that we are all called to share with the world on that